Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. What is heaven really like? It was Isaac Asimov who said, I don't believe in the afterlife, so I don't want to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. You know, one common misconception of is that heaven will be comprised of only nerds and prudes. For example, Mark Twain wrote, choose heaven for the climate and hell for the company. In Mark Twain's book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Huck has this to say about what he thinks about going to heaven. He says, the widow Douglas told me she was going to live as to go to the good place. She said all you would have to do there was to go around all day with a harp and sing forever and ever. I asked her if she reckoned that Tom Sawyer would go there. She said, not by a considerable sight. (laughs) I was glad about that because I want him and me to be together. Well, I can't see no advantage in going where she was going, so I made up my mind I wouldn't even try for it. That's kind of sad, huh? But to be fair... Does anyone want to be in heaven if it's filled with millions and millions of people like Saturday Night Live's church lady? But the life after death that Jesus describes is very different from that. Here's the main truth to know about heaven. Heaven will be life with God. In fact, in heaven it will be impossible to avoid God. It's not like heaven is an immense place and you have to track God down somewhere like finding the Wizard of Oz. Heaven does not contain God. God contains heaven. If you are a Christian this morning, you are assured that one day you will be in heaven. But the strange thing is the average non-Christian thinks heaven will be tedious and boring. They view it sort of like an eternal Sunday afternoon nap, which in my case still sounds pretty much like heaven. They think of heaven as plucking harp strings and popping a grape in your mouth occasionally just to break up the monotony of the place. But that kind of sentiment cannot be further from the truth. Heaven is a place so incredibly unbelievable that the Apostle Paul said, I just heard things up there that are too wonderful to even put into human words. There's a, willing, there's a reason why Paul was not only willing, but anxious to die so he could return back to heaven permanently. They were like, Paul, we're going to cut your head off. And Paul's reply would be, hey, I'm free right now if you are. Or just think about the streets of gold. The very thing that the world values the most is nothing more than asphalt up in heaven. I can't wait to see that. I'm going to take a big run in my socks and slide as far as I can. Look at verse 2 with me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. In our last time together, Jesus gave the commandment, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he gives the way to obey it when he says, believe in God and believe also in me. 
Belief being the singular key to a trouble-free heart, Jesus goes on to give the disciples reasons why they shouldn't be troubled and why we shouldn't be troubled when things seem to be falling down all around us. Now, no doubt that the disciples were deeply distressed at this time. For there in the upper room, Jesus began to inform them of the troubling news that one of them would betray him, that Peter would deny him, and that Jesus himself would be leaving them. Now, this message not only shocked Peter, but it must have stunned the rest of the disciples. After all, if brave Peter denied the Lord, what hope was there for the rest of them? It was then that Jesus gave them this message to calm their troubled hearts. He would give this assurance of going to heaven to help calm them. But how would he do that? Now, Dr. James Gray put it beautifully in a song years ago when he wrote, Who could mind the journey when the road leads home? The assurance of a heavenly home at the end of life's road enables us to bear joyfully with the obstacles and battles that will come along the way. It was this assurance that even encouraged the Lord himself, who has said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, Paul had this truth in mind when he wrote, For I have determined that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which will one day be revealed in us. Having a deep, underlying heart realization that there will be an eternal abode for us will bring rest to our souls in the midst of this troubled world. This, I believe, is what made the Apostle Paul such a powerful force, even though his world kept caving in all around him. I do not think that anyone experienced more trials and tribulations than Paul. But also, perhaps no one experienced more of God's sustaining power because of that. But he did have one advantage over us. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows. Paul was actually caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible things that a man is not permitted to tell. Now, Paul himself did not know whether this was a vision or a literal physical experience, but somehow he was caught up into heaven, and there he saw heavenly realities. Now, the same apostle Paul who had this vision of heaven and knew that there was a place, a real place for him, it allowed him to go victoriously through all of life's difficulties that came into his life. But even after all that, he wrote, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.6 adds, He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. It was that reality, I believe, that made Paul such a warrior. Now, some people say that this is escapism, that we are being so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good. I do not think so. We may be so pious that we are no earthly good. We may be so religious that we are no earthly good. We may be so impractical that we are no earthly good. 
But the Bible teaches just the opposite in that we won't be any earthly good until we are heavenly minded. Because as Paul points out, if in this life we have hope in Christ only, we are more miserable than all men. This one who had been shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, starved, stoned, and left for dead declared, if there is no heaven, then all I went through was really for nothing. And perhaps it was his proximity to death on so many occasions that it prompted him later to write, set your affection only on things above. For once Paul experienced even a taste of heaven, Nothing else mattered to him except to run the race and to win the prize and to keep eternity always in view. And so, one way to keep your heart from being overwhelmed in sadness and depression is to remember that you have a home in heaven. According to Jesus, heaven is a real place. It's not a product of religious imagination or the result of a psyched-up mentality It's not looking for pie in the sky by and by. Heaven is the place where God dwells and where Jesus sits this very day at the right hand of the Father. Heaven is described as a kingdom, an inheritance, a country, a city, and a home. We are told that there will be many dwelling places for us. Now, I usually preach out of the New King James, but both it and the King James miss it here on verse 2. Now, I know having a mansion in heaven is a source of many songs and paintings, but that's just not what the original text says. That Greek word mone is translated mansions in John 14, 2, and abode or home in John 14, 23. It simply means rooms or abiding places. So we must not think in terms of these palatial houses. And it's unfortunate that some songs have perpetuated the error that faithful Christians will have lovely mansions in glory, while lesser saints will have to be content with little cottages or even shacks. That's just untrue. Jesus Christ is now preparing places for all true believers, and each place will be beautiful. The dwelling places which the Lord spoke of must not be pictured as separate buildings as if heaven was a giant housing tract. The picture, rather, is of a father building additional rooms onto his house for his sons and their families, as was often done in Israel. In modern terms, the dwelling places might be pictured as apartments in the father's spacious house. But I promise you, you are not going to be disappointed. No one is ever going to say, Yeah, it's okay, I guess, but I would have never matched that wallpaper to those drapes. If you are a man, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But when Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, he is not speaking generically, but specifically. Jesus is preparing a place for you specifically. Now think through this. What do you enjoy? What has God built into your being. Whatever it is, know this. Jesus is preparing a place for you to fulfill the elements he's woven into the fabric of your personality uniquely and specifically. Now for me, it would be a room full of books and an endless supply of little Debbie cakes. But what did Jesus refer to when he said that he was going to prepare a place for his disciples? 
Now, I'm not sure that there is a full answer to that question because I do not know any passage of the Bible that bears directly upon it. But as I think about it, I wonder if the fact that we ask that question does not hide the verse's true meaning. We read the verse, I am going there to prepare a place for you, and we focus on the word prepare. What if we were to instead focus on the words for you instead? In that case, the emphasis would not be upon whatever architectural alterations the Lord may be making in heaven, but rather upon the fact that he is, it is for us as individuals that he is altering it. In other words, it would be the promise that in that great home of the fathers, there is a place being prepared particularly for you. Now, have you ever decorated a room for someone special? If you have, you know that what is done to make a room suit a particular personality. If it's a daughter, you would make the room pretty. You hang up her pictures. You have a place for her dolls. If it's a son, the room might have airplanes or model cars. Are we to think that Jesus will take less care for those whom he loves and who are going to spend eternity for, with him? So as the room fills with confusion, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Let not your hearts be troubled, and heaven is the key. But who believes in heaven anymore? It might surprise you. According to a Washington Post article, 88% of all Americans believe in a literal place called heaven. Now that's an important statistic because imagine what our society would be like if we didn't believe in heaven. A society that didn't believe in heaven would be obsessed with youth. It would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to look, stay, and feel young through plastic surgery, diets, and exercise programs. A society that didn't believe in heaven would spend billions of dollars on life support systems to delay facing an unknown future. A society that didn't believe in heaven would have crime that would soar without fear of any kind of eternal judgment. The, the society that didn't believe in heaven would be based upon the here and now and things like health and prosperity. You're thinking, wait a minute then. We are that culture. You know why? Because although our generation gives lip service to the idea of heaven, we do not live out the reality of heaven. So I ask us, why isn't heaven a reality? One reason is, ours is the first generation to teach that materially one can now have heaven on earth. Commercials say things like, your life will be perfect if you just use this toothpaste or drive that car or drink this beer. And although people fall for that pitch time and time again, each time they do, they rediscover that nothing on this earth is truly substantial. That nothing this side of eternity can do more than just whet our appetites for heaven. Has your soul ever been stirred by simply watching the water cascade down a waterfall? Has your heart ever been overwhelmed by the beauty of the sun setting into the ocean? Have you ever just been moved to tears by listening to the Hallelujah Chorus? Now, I suggest that these feelings are common to all men. And I suggest that they, what they do is they rekindle a vague, foggy, misty memory of a place called Eden, where there was no sin, no sorrow, no disease, and no death. 
when men walked with God in the cool of the day and where things were just right. You know, when such a memory stirs within me, I feel like a frog that has been cursed. And I'm just waiting for the prince to come and kiss me before I croak. And that is where, thank you, and that is where our society is. We know there has to be something more because our experiences with true beauty and with true reality are always so fleeting. What happened to the waterfall experience we cry? What happened to that sunset? What happened to the hallelujah chorus? Why do they elude me? Here's the reason, I think. Do the birds complain about the air in which they fly? Do fish complain about the sea? No. Only man complains about his environment because it is one in which he truly doesn't belong. Time frustrates him because he has been made for eternity. C.S. Lewis said it best when he wrote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The fact, according to the Bible, that there is no past, present, or future in eternity means heaven is a continual now. Thus, if time, which may be man's biggest frustration here on earth, is non-existent in heaven, we can be sure that every lesser frustration will be obliterated as well. Heaven will truly be absolutely, wonderfully, and incredibly perfect. And if you have trusted Christ, you are assured of going there one day. On this, Spurgeon writes, Doubting one. Thou hast often said, I fear I shall never enter heaven. Fear not, all the people of God shall enter there. I love the the quaint saying of a dying man who exclaimed, I have no fear of going home. I have sent all before me. God's finger is on the latch of my door, and I'm ready for him to enter. But said one, are you not afraid lest you should miss your inheritance? Nay, said he, nay, for there is one crown in heaven which the angel Gabriel cannot wear. It will fit no head but mine. There is one place in heaven which Paul the Apostle cannot feel. It was made for me, and I shall have it. In heaven, you will be able to experience to your fullest desires and the extent of your heart. Maybe you just love music, but you really don't have the gift to do a lot with it. When you get to heaven, I believe you'll be able to sing like an angel or play any instrument you want. So even though down here you might be a backup singer, you know, you sing and people back up. Up in heaven, it'll be much better. Or maybe you love gardening. In heaven, the grass really is greener. There are no weeds. That was part of the curse. Or maybe you're just a people person. The people you know here, you're going to know there. Well, how do I know? Won't our bodies be changed? Well, yes. But look at when Jesus, when he came back from the dead, although he walked through a wall, Thomas still recognized him immediately. As for those in heaven you haven't even met, name tags will be unnecessary, as it seems we will instinctively know people there. Now, why do I think this? Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus did not say, Peter, James, and John, I'd like you to meet Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, this is Peter, James, and John. 
Now, there were no formal introductions, yet Peter, James, and John knew intuitively that it, they were t- Jesus was talking to Elijah and Moses. So it has been pointed out, first, that we shall see Jesus, and second, that we will see and recognize one another. The third point is that we shall see each other not as we are now or have been, but as we have always been meant to be. This truth is conveyed in the text that says that we shall see Christ face to face. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall, we shall see him as he is. Now, until recently, every time I read that verse, I focused on the word we and read it as if it said I. I read that I will be like him and took comfort in that, and there is comfort in that. But now I'm more impressed with something else that is also true. It is not only that I shall be made like Jesus, it says that we all will be made like him. As a result, the sin, ignorance, anger, weariness that so often mar our relationships down here, all that will be eliminated. And that day we will have a fresh view of each other, for we will finally see each other, not as we have come to know each other down here in our sin, but rather as we were truly created to be. So all those things that you guys do right now that aggravates me, it'll all be gone. We should also recognize that heaven is likely to become increasingly interesting to us as we grow older. Moody tells of a man who testified that in his youth he thought of heaven largely as a great shining city filled with vast walls, domes, and towers, and populated by millions of angels of all who were strangers to him. But then his little brother died. After that, he thought of heaven as a great great shining city filled with vast walls and towers and unknown angels, but now also with one little fellow that he knew. When a second brother died, there were two that he knew. Acquaintances continued to die. In time, one of his children went to be with Christ. That one was followed by another, and then still another. By this time, this man seldom thought of walls and towers. He thought of those residents of the celestial city whom he knew, and his interest in heaven was intensified. It is said that toward the end of his life, that so many acquaintances of his had already gone to heaven, that it seems sometimes he knew more people in heaven than he did on earth. And so, of course, his thoughts increasingly were fixed upon that distant place. But this is what makes heaven heaven to us. True, having our loved ones there will be part of it. But the thing that truly will make heaven heaven is finally being with Jesus. On this point, a guy told a story about a child whose mother became very sick. While the mother was sick, one of the neighbors took the child away to stay with her till the mother should get well again. But instead of getting well, the mother grew worse and worse and finally died. The neighbors thought that they would not take the child home until the funeral was over, and they would not tell her about her mother being dead. So after a while, they simply brought the girl home, and at once she went to try to find her mother. First she went into the sitting room to find her mother. Then she went into the parlor to find the mother. She went from one end of the house to the other, but she could not find her. At last she, at last she asked, where's my mama? 
When they told her that her mother was gone, the child then wanted to go back to the neighbor's house. Why? Home had lost its attraction for her since her mother was no longer there. Moody writes, it's not the Jasper Rawls and the Pearly Gates that are going to make heaven attractive. It is being with God. To know that we're going to be going to heaven is a wonderful thing. But more wonderful still is the fact that one day we'll get to see the face of Christ. And we're going to be able to express to him the praise and love that he deserves for having left heaven to come to earth to die for us sinners. Of this truth, Franny Crosby once wrote, some day the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king. As we finish up this morning, heaven is the place where we will at last have all of our questions answered. Why was that person born severely retarded? Why was that person born to starvation? Why wasn't this person healed when we all prayed in faith, why was that baby allowed to be conceived only to be aborted? Why? 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 Hang on, Jesus said. It's not over yet. The first will be last, and the last will be first, and the score one day is going to be settled. But until then, there will be trials and tribulations down here. But we are assured that we are going to make it. For the one who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work. Suppose you're waiting to board a flight and a pilot walks in and says, you're going to have the flight of your life. Smooth sailing all the way. I guarantee you we won't even hit one pocket of turbulence. You will have quadraphonic headphones, an Epicurean experience with a seven-course meal, and your choice of all the latest movies. There's only one problem. We haven't quite figured out how to land yet. We know we tried a thousand times, but so far everybody has died. But while you're in the air, I promise you your flight will be smooth and your experience fulfilling. At this point, a second pilot enters the boarding area saying, well, I can't promise you smooth sailing. In fact, you'll no doubt hit some bumps and you might even have the urge to regurge. However, we have a perfect landing record and we will get you to your destination safely, guaranteed. Which plane would you board today? Listen, my beloved, for the unbeliever, life down here on this earth is as good as it's ever going to get. But for the believer, Life down here on this earth is as bad as it's ever going to get. Several years ago, I read the testimony of an elderly missionary who was returning home from the field to the United States. He was going to live out his last days with his daughter who lived in the Midwest. Upon his uh, arriving to California, he boarded a bus to begin his trip across the country. The first night, he stopped in Las Vegas. He had been out of the United States for more than 30 years, and he had he'd never been to Las Vegas. He checked into a hotel and took a walk down the strip. And although it was close to midnight, it looked like midday because of all the lights. As he walked down the strip, he heard the music. He saw the amazing hotels. And even he went to a car show where they had all the latest automobiles. He saw games being played in the casinos and heard the money coming out of the slot machines. 
He saw the marquees announcing the amazing entertainers. He saw the drink specials announcing the amazing food advertised in all the restaurants. But eventually he went back to his room in the high-rise hotel where he was staying. He entered the room but didn't turn on the light. He walked across the room and opened the curtains. In the quietness of that room, he got down upon his knees in front of that window. He looked down at that Vegas strip, then into the more impressive lights of the heavens, and he prayed this prayer. God, I thank you that tonight I haven't seen anything, but I want more than you. Let that also be our prayer and our desire this morning. Let us pray. Lord, first, thank you for leaving heaven to make the sacrifice that we could one day be there. Let us not be deceived by these trinkets the world continually tries to sell us. Let us keep our minds and our hearts upon the celestial city in a day when we will all be perfect and sinless and most importantly, with you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This being the first